Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is January 23rd, 2015, and this is episode 1506 of the Survival Podcast. And you know what today is? What is it? What is it? It's Friday! 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 That's right, time for your calls to 866 65 think 86665think one more time with the numbers 866-658-4465 you call that number toll free you'll get a voicemail message uh, on the other side like an old school answering machine is what it'll sound like you leave me your message and uh, probably 30% chance you'll get on the air uh, holding your call till like Wednesday of the week seems to work better for people because of the mood I've been in for a couple months of screening from the most recent calls backwards so just on a numbers issue there's a little tip there uh, doesn't mean it always works but right now more often than not I'm, I'm, I'm scanning from the most recent to the oldest versus the oldest to the most recent but that could change any day you never know rules to get your call on the air or at least make it more likely call from a quiet area don't call running a wee or a chainsaw or from the back of a motorcycle or in a vehicle doing 100 miles an hour with the windows down two make sure there's bars on your phone so you don't sound like this hijack because you can't use your call and no one's there to tell you you sound like that so check the bars on your phone when you call in Next up, speak loudly. Do not turn your head away from the phone like this and back to the phone like that and away from the phone like that because then I can't use, I can only fix so much, guys. And sometimes you guys start out, you could see it in the timeline too. Really, really big audio waves and then they go down almost pinched off to nothing and then back up and then down. I guess that's what's going on there. Uh, last but not least, and the most important thing really, make your point or ask your question in one to two sentences immediately. Then give me details. I promise you, I do this as a profession. It will work better for you. A lot of times folks call in, I hear it in your voice, you start asking, you get lost, and I just hear people go, damn, and hang the phone up, call back in and, and, and do it again. It won't happen if you ask the question or make your point first. It really won't. you got to trust me here. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors before we get into your calls. Sponsor of the day number one today, BulkAmmo.com. Hey, if you want ammo and you want lots of it and you want it to show up so fast at your front door that you think your neck's going to snap, then uh, get on over to BulkAmmo.com and see what they've got available for you there. I'll tell you what, they've if it's available, they're probably the ones that have it, and they you know their name is what they do, Bulk Ammo. They got it in bulk, lots of it, and really quick shipping. And let me tell you what they have right now that a lot of other people do not have. 22 long rifle and lots of it. It ain't cheap. It ain't like the good old days. I'm sitting here looking at a value pack of federal 550 rounds that I probably bought back in the day for about 20 bucks. But right now they got the, the plain old Aquila, uh, 500 round brick, 64 bucks. At least they have it. That's what I can say. It's there and they've got a lot of other options with 22 long rifle. That's the hardest thing to find right now. If they got that, they probably got everything else you're looking for. Check them out today. BulkAmmo.com. Remember, they do have a special deal for members of the Support Brigade. So if you're a member, log in and check first. Next up today, the longest survival podcast sponsor that we have. The first survival podcast sponsor, they never left. Safe Castle Royal. They've been here literally from the very beginning. In fact, before I was willing to take sponsors, Vic, uh, who was the owner at the time, was, was at the, you know, basically at the door knocking, hey, let us in. We want to be part of this. 
and they've stayed true to us, and we've stayed true to them. They have everything you can think of for your prepping needs. You'll find it at safecastle.com. They also have a sister site to build some of the best hardened shelters you'll find anywhere in the world. And uh, they have a really cool thing. It's called a Discount Buyers Club. It's $49. Bucks. You get discounts from them for the rest of your life. And you're probably going to be a lifelong customer once you give them a shot at your business. So it's more than worth it. But if you're a member of my support brigade, guess what? You get that for free, effectively making your first year of MSB a dollar. Uh, they've been doing that for us for over six years now. I don't know many podcasts that have made it six years, let alone sponsorship relationships with podcasts that have made it six years. Check them out today, safecastle.com. Remember, Safe Castle, Bulk Ammo, many of our sponsors, and about 60 total companies do give you guys discounts if you're members of my support brigade. You can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members. And remember, if you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, or first responder, EMT, paramedics, firefighters, that type of thing, Active duty or prior service, you do qualify for a discount. Email me, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Put service discount TSPC, Tango Sierra Papa, Papa Charlie, Tango Sierra Papa, Papa Charlie, uh, in the subject line and I will get back to you with a discount code. That's the new way to email me. I found that that's worked out so well to find stuff that's delved down into the spam filters. Anything you email me that you want to make sure I, I, I see, no matter what you put in the subject line, just include TSPC, again, Tango, Sierra, Papa, Charlie, all letters together, no spaces. I'll search that in the filter before I empty the junk folder, and now I find 20, 30 emails that I can't guarantee I was finding them all before. So please make sure you do that when you get in touch with me. Jack at the survivalpodcast.com is my real email. I really do engage with you guys as much as I, I possibly can, given the amount of volume of stuff that I get. I try to answer you know, somebody that I haven't ever answered before at least a few times a day, and just to say hi or thank you or whatever. I won't answer every email. Every email sent to me, especially that way, will get in front of my eyes. I will read it. I might read it like a speed reading thing, which I'm pretty good at. And it might go in my head, and whatever you've told me might not come back out of my mouth and be part of what I do for a week or two. You never know. But I will pay attention. I will always listen to the audience. That's a commitment from me to you. On that, let us go ahead and look at the year that was the episode. It's 1506. There's a lot going on this year. Uh, so much so that I'm you know, halfway tempted to read them all, but I'm not going to just do to time interest on a Friday show that's going to go long, as always. Uh, the first one, the first Dominican sugarcane crop and hitchhiking insects. The founding of the Pope's Swiss Guard. And Christopher Columbus dies rich and bitter. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't at least kind of expand on the fact that Chris Columbus dies in 1506. Uh, such an iconic name, we must at least acknowledge that happened. And uh, that that chapter in history was both opened and closed in a relatively brief period of time. And Columbus dies of a parasite that he probably picked up in the New World. So uh, 1492, Columbus sells the ocean blue. Uh, 1506, 14 years later, rich, bitter, mad, and dead as a doornail. I guess he wasn't really mad anymore. Anyway, I'm going to read the first Dominican sugarcane crop and hitchhiking insects because there's a lot of lesson in this for modern day. Europe doesn't know it yet, but it's going to develop a big sugar tooth in the coming years. Sugar was first introduced into Europe when crusaders brought back a gritty plant from the Holy Land called al-Zakar, which is the Arabic word for sugar. Sugarcane was domesticated thousands of years ago on the island of present-day New Guinea, Indonesia, This year, sugarcane has reached the Dominican Republic, and one other living thing has been introduced, a new type of insect, scale insects, 
have a waxy coat since they are new to the environment. The normal plant defenses are useless, and the insects have no natural predators. Their growth rate becomes astronomical. Scientists call this an ecological release, but most people would call it an explosion. My take by Alex Shrug, who puts these together for us at TSPWiki.com. People of the time didn't notice the new insects, but rather wrote about the sudden increase in native insects, such as local fire ant, which looks different from the imported fire ant we see in Texas. The native fire ant protected these new scale insects because of the sugary substance they produced. With the increase in nourishment, the fire ant population increased exponentially, Santa Domingo was abandoned for a time as people ran before the stinging explosion of fire ants. Later, a different imbalance in the environment will result in a massive increase of carrier pigeons in Buffalo, but that's a story for another time. FYI, much of the information I present here comes from Charles Mann's excellent book, 1493, Uncovering the New World Columbus, Columbus Created. It largely documents the introduction of new plants, insects and diseases back and forth between the new world and the old and the consequences thereof. I think this is very important for us to understand today still that a lot of times we have this desire to take something that's growing somewhere else that's exotic and grow it here. I think people overreact to that in present day. And here's what I'm talking about. Autumn olive is not native to the United States of America. So when you talk about using it as a nitrogen fixture, people go, ah, it's going to explode, ah, we're going to die, ah. uh, it's here. It's here. It's not going away. And what it does is it repairs ecosystems, increases soil fertility, and when they talk about native plants being displaced by it, it's because the soil becomes fertile enough that the forest can success into greater fertility. I'm not going to not use an effective plant. But introducing a plant that's not yet got a real strong toehold here and increasing one that maybe just has little tiny pockets of isolation can be disastrous. In fact, it was bringing the Chinese chestnut, which is now the salvation of the chestnut industry, uh, to North America. They created the chestnut blight that killed all the chestnuts. So we have to learn from that, and we have to think about that. Uh, when we're taking actions and doing things that involve the introduction of something to an ecosystem where it hasn't been before, and we can look at thousands of examples of this, many that are recent, like cane toads in Australia, uh, and the damage that has caused, and people did that because they thought it was a good idea, uh, and things like what have happened on islands. Like So we had Bermuda yesterday, I didn't read, But the guy that founded Bermuda, or actually had Bermuda named after him, uh, he was swinging by on one of his trips to the New World, drops a bunch of pigs off so they can breed so that sailors on the way between the two places can stop there and harvest pork. Sounds like a good idea, but pigs, well, let me tell you what pigs do. They eat, they make more pigs, and they fight. And that's all they do. And they are very good at making more pigs. So they can throw an ecosystem out of balance very quickly As we know here in Texas, with over six thousand, six million, I'm sorry, six million feral hog population in the state of Texas alone. Uh, before I get to your calls today, I do have a uh, couple quick things to tell you about. Number one, we did introduce the plant propagation course taught by Nick Ferguson uh, today, and uh, it's a pretty awesome thing. It really is. Uh, I'm blown away by it. My wife's excited to take it. We're going to be using the information in it as we expand our nursery here at our property alone. I did some math over the last three years. I've spent about $10,000 on trees and plants. With the knowledge in this course, I could have produced the majority of them, at least you know, for myself. 
uh, let's say $7,000 worth by taking a $300 to $350 course, depending on whether you're pre-registered or not. That's just in production for myself, not to mention what could be done as, as a production to make a profit off of. Uh, Nick is extremely experienced. He's got about 20 years of plant propagation experience and uh, just a, an excellent, passionate teacher. And I can't tell you what. But next week, I will be announcing a special thing for all people that are taking this course um, that will be available to people who take the course months from now, uh, but not the way that it will be available to people who take the course now. It's an unadvertised bonus, and it may be one of several. Uh, we have had a lot of discussions within Perma Ethos about how long it took to deliver the PDC and things like that, and we want to, from now on, when we bring out an educational project, Always over-deliver on what we promise, every single time and every way that's possible. So uh, not only is just a great course the way it is and well worth the money, we're going to do some things that make it even cooler for you guys going forward. Uh, next thing I want to make sure I tell you guys today, there will be no show Monday and Tuesday next week. I have to go to Arkansas uh, for the consulting uh, project that we talked about through Perma Ethos, where we're working with a, a very large company uh, and doing the initial design uh, in conjunction with Mark Shepard's group called RAD, uh, and we are designing a 500-acre sustainable uh, ecosystem farm uh, using the restoration agriculture methodology. So we'll get a lot of video out of that and things like that that we can put out for you guys, but I will just not be able to do a show. Uh, I'm billing for my time to be there for those two days in, in the Permethos, so uh, I have to give my time and attention and dedication to the client. Uh, as to who the client is and exactly where the location is, that information will be coming soon. Uh, but the client would like to get this process done and some things uh, done at the corporate level before we go and uh, make a big public spectacle of it. But basically, we're going to make a big public spectacle of it. We're going to say this is what you can do uh, with land that was previously just kind of sitting there as buffer land around an industrial site. And it's going to be awesome. And more to come next week. Anyway, with that... Let's go ahead and get into your calls today. Again, the number 866-65-THINK. Let's take that first call. Hello, Jack. This is Aaron, your neighbor from the north. I was uh, um, wondering about your you and Ben Falk were talking about sheep and how they may not be the best livestock or maybe more troublesome. If you could, please give me your thoughts on that. Um, and thank you for all you do. Thanks, Jack. Bye. All right, I, I might be being a little bit too hard on this. Let me give you the backstory here and, and my biggest opinion about sheep is a problem. So I went up to Ben Fox a couple of years ago to uh, guest lecture at one of his permaculture design courses. The day I got there, they had a sheep go, a sheep go down with something they call fly strike. This is where the sheep wool stays overly wet for too long and flies begin to lay eggs in the sheep's wool on the sheep's skin. The, the fly eggs then hatch out to maggots. Yes, maggots like you see in your garbage can, that type of maggot. The maggots then burrow into the sheep's skin and begin to feed on the sheep as a host. And at that point, there's certain things you can put on the sheep that bring the maggots out. But what really has to happen is the sheep has to be sheared and the stuff has to be put on the sheep. And if you don't do it, it can make the, ship, the sheep grow so weak so fast and dehydrate so fast the sheep will die. Okay, this is, this is not even getting into the, the concept that sheep are pretty stupid creatures that try to look for ways to kill themselves, which is what most people that run sheep will tell you. They, they, they have almost a desire to die, it seems like at times. 
But the thick wool and the wet climates caused this problem to happen. Ben had always run chickens with his sheep, and he had separated them for about a week because of some work he was doing with this ongoing PDC going on. I got there in the middle of the PDC. The first week had already been done. As soon as that happened and the, 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 the birds weren't there, with the sheep this this occurred so keeping birds with the sheep would mitigate this problem but dealing with it was it was awful now i guess if you are a person that knows how to shear sheep well um it might not be as big a deal but you really don't want to shear a sheep in august which is when this happened because they're going into winter and you want the wool on them through the winter and you want to shear them in the spring and then you go on from there well Ben wasn't really set up to shear sheep, so we had like old school shears, like the Japanese ones you use for cutting uh, greens and stuff like that and, and what have you. So a whole bunch of students and, and, and we got together and we, we spent hours with this poor sheep, uh, nicked its skin several times, which sheep are tough, I'll give you that. This thing didn't even react to it. Um, and we kept pouring these different remedies onto uh, the sheepskin. And when you did, hundreds of maggots crawled out of the, 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 the animal skin. It was one of the more disgusting things um, I've ever seen in my life. And I've been to the third world and I've seen combat. Uh, not as a combat troop, but I've seen the aftermath of combat as a military person. And th th that was worse. But this was pretty stomach-turning. And that's just one thing you might have to deal with if you deal with sheep. So this is why I had a, a immediate, like, I don't want that feeling. Uh, sheep also need to be sheared, and there's no real money in wool unless you're doing a very specialized high-end wool anymore or something like that. So uh, it's an added need, an added expense without a yield. Um, if I was going to do sheep, I would look to do something like dorpers. Dorpers are what are called the hair sheep. Basically, they put all this wool on. And then they have the the good sense through their ecol or their uh, their evolution to know they don't want it in the summer and in the spring it just falls off. That would solve that problem. It wouldn't solve the potential for fly strike with them uh, because by August you know they've put the wool back on and what have you. But or going into September I guess down here, um, but it would be one bit easier. Uh, and what would be nice about that is the dorpers and some of the other hair sheep's are closer in their habit to goats than sheep. They do well on, on sparse brows. Um, they are hardier in the heat, etc. So if I was going to do sheep, that's probably what I would do. Uh, and, and yet they don't have the intelligence that makes the goat the pain in the ass that it is. They're not as good at like climbing fences. If you have a goat and uh, it figures out how to climb a particular fence, you better figure out a new fence because it'll do it every time after that. Uh, and they're not quite as destructive as goats as far as eating things that they're not supposed to eat. A little bit easier to control. So I don't hate sheep. I just personally wouldn't want them. That's my background there with them. And I just don't think they fit my environment very well. But a lot of people keep them and they're very happy with them. So, uh, and Ben, I'll say, you know, I don't want them anymore. But they did a lot of great work for us while they were on the property. They did a lot to improve the pasture. Uh, they're great browsers. Uh, and if you can keep them from killing themselves... Uh, or becoming infected with fly strike, uh, they're probably fine. But I just think that there's animals better suited for most small-scale homesteaders uh, than sheep, personally. That's my personal opinion. Let's take another one. In the morning, Jack. Question about bone stock and bone broth. 
can you use a pressure cooker to speed up this process, or would you not advise this, and why? Thanks. Have a good day. The answer is you most certainly can make bone stock or bone broth with a pressure cooker. And it certainly does take less time uh, than it would if you were trying to make it the, uh, let's call it traditional way, slow simmer method. Um, here's why I don't do it. Uh, I don't think it takes much effort to make it in a slow simmer method. There's two ways, and somebody asked about why I prefer the stovetop method over a slow cooker, which I do a lot as well, and I'll, I'll talk about that later in, in the, this answer. But let's just start out with you know, what you're trying to do with bone stock. You're actually trying to demineralize the bone. You're actually trying to extract from the bone uh, components of the marrow and, and minerals and nutrients that are locked up in, in the, the skeletal structure of the bone. And when you, when you simmer meat, and chicken you can do for this in about 8 hours to 12 hours, and sometimes I simmer chicken for, for 24 hours in a slow cooker. And uh, when you're done with that, you can take the big bones of a chicken, and you take it in your hand, and you, it just crushes. Uh, the bone structure of the breast of a chicken, after 24 hours in a slow simmer method, is it's gone. You, you can't even find it. There's nothing left of it which means it's now dissolved into a liquid into the broth itself, which is exactly what you're trying to do. With beef, uh, the bones are much more hardy, but a lot of times you'll get the beef to a point where you can chip pieces off with your fingers and you give the bone to the dog and there's none of this shards and dangerous stuff. The dog just can devour a beef bone that's been slow simmered. And I'll do beef bones for about 48 hours uh, to get the most out of them. During that time, You don't want a rapid boil. Recently, due to a brain fart, I had some uh, bone stock being made with some beef rib bones that I got a good deal on, and it went to a rapid boil, and it pretty much ruined it. It turned into like a milky color. Um, it just wasn't right, and we ended up uh, giving it away to the dogs and the chickens to pick the bones clean. Um, and it's too bad that happened. This is because you don't want a rapid boil. You don't want to put the bones in a pot and get it bubble, bubble, bubble. You want this barely boiling simmer. Okay. Now, when you boil water, it's at, everybody knows this, 212 degrees. It is impossible for water to exist in a purely liquid, liquid state at a higher temperature than 212 degrees. It turns the steam and boils off. If you heat it rapidly enough and fast enough, you can create... A giant steam cloud out of an even a vat of water if you had sufficient heat to do the job. And this is why when you can things with a water bath canner, you can only push it to about 212 degrees. And that's why you could do high acid foods like tomatoes and things like that that won't allow anaerobic growth of things like the botulism toxin. And botulism will kill you dead fast. You don't need very much of it to kill you dead. To, to kill and effectively be sure that you've killed off all botulism and some other anaerobes that can grow in an anaerobic environment, uh, you have to push temperatures up closer to about 240 degrees. When you pressurize steam, you can push past that 240 degree temperature. And that's how pressure canning works. So we put some water in the bottom, we put our jars in there, we put our rings around so that the top doesn't fall off, we pressure You know, we get up to 10, 15 pounds of pressure depending on your altitude and the recipe you're following with pressure canning. 
and that steam pressurizes and that reaches an internal temperature of not just the, the, the pressure cooker, but an internal temperature of the item in the can of over 240 degrees. Okay, So if we shorten the bone stock procedure through pressurizing steam and heating up over 240 degrees during the extraction from the bones, we're effectively doing some of the th same things that happen with a rapid boil. By limiting how long we do it for, we can come up with a really good stock, really, really fast compared to the other way, and it works. But I just don't think you get the quality. Uh, nutritionally, I don't think you get as much out of it. I think if you do it long enough to extract what, as much as you can with a slow simmer, the, the flavor goes off. Um, and I just don't think it's quite the same taste. Though if you made me some, I would drink it and be very happy to have it. Um, and I wouldn't decry anybody from doing it. That's just why I do not. Now, why did I say in the last time I talked about bone stock that I don't really like to use a pressure uh, um, a slow cooker with it uh, unless you know I just have to for whatever reason? Here's why. Rapid boiling is one. When you put a bunch of stuff in a slow cooker... You set that sucker to high, like an hour later, it's barely hot, right? But all of a sudden, it kind of reaches a, a terminal point, it goes over, it starts to bubble. You kick it down a low. And it'll simmer nicely without a rapid boil for you for a very long time if it's close to full. But every once in a while, it seems to like reach a critical mass and starts to go to a rapid boil. This has you occasionally having to check on your, your slow cooker and drop it down to the, the warm setting for a while, and then maybe bumping it back up. I've never seen it get into such a rapid boil that it causes anything to be really off, but I don't want a rapid boil. I want that slow simmer just barely boiling. Uh, so it's a little more difficult to hold that with your, your slow cooker. And then I have great big giant pots that I can make a huge amount of at once, and even my biggest slow cookers only make so much. So if I want to make a lot, I kind of have to have two slow cookers going. So it's a capacity issue more than a rapid boil. The next thing is with a big pot, put all my bones and meat in there, and it's really easy to skim the fat. And when I find I have to cram it to fit in a slow cooker, it's not as easy to skim the fat. My solution to that is when you're done, strain your broth, put it in a big container, stick it in the refrigerator. Wait till morning and the next day and take it out, and all the fat's hard on the top, scrape the fat off. So you can do that. I just feel like you get a little bit more of the impurities out and a little bit cleaner of a broth if you skim during the, the initial process for about the first half hour of simmer. So that's why I like to do that. On any note, if you make bone broth, I really recommend you take the bones and put them into an oven and roast them for 30 minutes to 45 minutes. Or another great way to do it is on the grill. Set your gas grill to low, put your bones and your meat trimmings and whatever out on the grill and roast them there because then your fat drips down the grill and burns away. Just make sure you don't set everything on fire with too much fat dripping off some of the, the fattier stuff. Uh, and that way, when you go to make your stock, you're going to have less fat in it. Anyway, good question. Hope that makes sense. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Eric from Indiana. I'm looking for an affordable storm shelter door. Uh, background is we've got an ICF home. One corner of our home is a concrete room. And uh, all the doors on the market marketed as uh, storm shelter doors are extremely expensive. So I just wanted to get your take on maybe a more affordable option. Thanks for your show. Bye. This was I'm a little bit out of my element on because I've never had to build one of these before. Uh, I would tell you this. In general... 
Um, the more, the bigger concern I would have with a door standing up to a storm, if walls are standing up to a storm, you know, there's got to be something framed around that, that entrance, that storm shelter, uh, or storm cellar, is the hardware. That doesn't mean I put a cheap ass door on there. I'm just saying that part of what you may be getting when you're buying these officially marketed storm shelter doors or storm doors is better hardware. So you really got to look at good heavy-duty hardware and good heavy-duty door frame, door jam. Uh, and at that point, it's probably not that hard to fabricate your own door. Um, if you were to build an old-school-looking door out of just uh, you know two-by-oak plank, uh, where you, 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 know, you line it up, you, you build it to your size, and you, 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 you put it together with cross members, you know, something like you'd think of like you'd see like in the old movies with a medieval castle type, that kind of structure... If it goes through there, it's probably pulls you out of the ground. Uh, oak is one of the hardest woods known to man, and I, I truly believe that you would be in greater danger of the of the, the the structure holding the door in failing than something penetrating two inches of solid oak. Another option would be to talk to local metal fabrication plants about fabricating a door for you uh, out of steel. And, uh, and making the hardware for you as well. That would probably still cost less than a lot of commercial options, and you have a pretty solid door. Um, you could always, if you wanted it to look nice, over the steel on the outside, you could you know, cover that with, with plank or wood of whatever kind of thing you wanted to make it look nice to, to decorate into your home. If anybody has a better answer to this question, uh, please go ahead and post it in the show notes for episode 1506. Not something I've had to deal with before, you know, coming up with a less expensive storm door. Um, but I can tell you that growing up as a kid in Pennsylvania, we had a, you know, a, 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 a root cellar, uh, under the house, uh, that was, you know, doubled as a storm shelter. And it was just big old oak plank doors. Now, we weren't living in Nebraska or Kansas or something where tornadoes are typical. Uh, but I can't see anything getting through those doors. Uh, some of the oak, that, you know, as oak ages, it gets harder. Uh, the oak under that house, uh, you couldn't get a nail in it without drilling a hole, and you had to maybe use a drill bit once before it would be sharpened. You had to use a really small bit to get into it, and then a little bit bigger bit, and it would smoke a drill bit. Uh, this is oak from the 1850s, of course, and it, it, we don't quite grow it that way anymore, but it does kind of testify to the strength of oak. So I, I think you could go out and, and build a door if you wanted to, Uh, from just generally available white oak that would be about as solid as anything you would ever buy. And when you look at the price of that board lumber, it's not that it's cheap, but you should be able to do it for a lot less. You're not talking about that much lumber. Uh, but again, really consider more than anything else the hinges, the doorknob, the hardware, the door jam. Uh, that is the, the greater point of failure to me uh, for a door in a storm situation uh, than the door itself. Let's take another call. Jack, this is Roger in East Tennessee. My question relates to antiques and guns. Our family has been in the antique business for years. We make furniture and have bought furniture uh, and have traded and sold on it. Would that be something good during a complete crack at the fan scenario as barter? Next question is about guns. Would it be sensible as opposed to as investing in gold and silver to also invest in uh, guns and ammo, reloading equipment, so on and so forth. 
Look forward to hearing from you, and thank you for your service in the Army. My son is now in the 101st Airborne, graduate of assault school, and is now serving in, uh, in graduate of air assault school and now serving in uh, Afghanistan. Thank you. All right, so here's – it's really a complicated question. Let's start out with just the concept of antique. So if we have the apocalypse, uh, dogs and cats living together as puppy kittens and uh, uh, zombies marching and the Illuminati's putting people in FEMA camps, the, the premium on a product for being an antique or the premium on a coin for numismatic value, a collectible value, etc., will be non-existent. Non-existent, 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 non-existent. And the worse things become economically, the less value something will tend to have simply because it's collectible or old, etc., with some exceptions. There's certain things that are so in demand and so cool and people want them so bad uh, that the value tends to stay and all but the end of the earth drop off completely. The economy is, there's no money anyway, so it doesn't matter. Okay, So the concept that if there's a, a full-on shit hit the fan, um, that you're, you're going to sell something because it's from 1860 for a higher price than something from 19, you know, 1990, if both of them function, is, is ridiculous. It's not going to happen. Premium values are placed on collectibles, antiques, etc., based on what's known as surplus income. So if you if you go into a house uh, of a person that's very well to do, and they have any kind of uh, affinity for a time in history or a, a person or an event or what have you, you tend to see that they get into this kind of collectible thing, right? So a person that's into stamps might have a stamp that he paid a thousand dollars for. Um, but a person that, that, that makes $25,000 a year buys a stamp when he's put it on an envelope and send it somewhere. Now, if he happens to come across something uh, valuable through some sort of uh, opportunity, he may partake in it, uh, he may hold on to it, or he may go sell it to somebody with surplus income. But you can just watch the antique market, the surplus market, and as the economy wavers... People, even with money, just spend less of it on superfluous things like an 1860s shotgun. People with lots of money will always plank down for the best of the best or the most limited or the coolest or whatever, but the, the, the mass market is the person that's just doing a little better than he needs to to get by. All the way up to people doing quite a bit better than they need to to get by that like antiques, that like the, uh, the numismatics, etc., And that is contingent upon a good economy. So now you said you make and you fabricate furniture. That's a totally different thing. right? If you can't get something of good quality, but someone can provide you something of good quality, then you'll pay for it. But you know, you can look at something like an old Curo or something like that, or old chest or whatever, that a modern version of it sells for $40, bucks, let us say. And you go to an antique mall, and that thing's selling for $1,000. bucks, And there's somebody out there willing to buy it. So... You know, they'll get that money for it. Crap hit the fan. Ain't nobody can buy that thing for that much money. No one's going to care. Now, on the gun thing, I've talked about this before. Guns can have a good return. I do not see them as the type of investment that you're looking at, though, when you look at silver and gold. Uh, I also had a person ask me recently about gems. 
you know, diamonds, rubies, etc. I put all of that in the same category. It's a risk play if you're looking at it from a, a straight monetary investment standpoint. The value is subjective, and that's that's the thing with antiques, right? So let's just combine that and say we have a gun that we've invested in. It's an 1870-something Winchester lever gun. One of the coolest things ever made, or it's a sharp single-shot rifle, one of the first cartridge rifles ever made. It's cool. Everybody wants one. They're awesome. All right? I want one. Do I own one? No. Why? Because they cost so damn much money. And I'm talking about the sharps now. They cost so much money that even though I understand why they cost that much money, they ain't making no more like they did back then. There's only so many originals out there. They're awesome. They're cool. They're neat. They're a piece of history. I'm not willing to part with my money at that level because there's too many things I want more. Whenever you sell something, whether it's a jewel or an antique or a collectible firearm that's carrying with it a premium based on when it was made or how pure it is or whatever, you're selling a subjective value. The truth is, the absolute truth is, I have a $220 out-of-the-box brand-new New England firearm single-shot .45-70 Winchester rifle that is superior in every way, from a functional standpoint, to an old Sharps rifle. It just is. It's more accurate. It's easier to get parts for. It's less likely to have a malfunction. And I don't care if I get a scratch on it like I do with a collectible. I'm only buying the other thing due to the subjective value. To me, it has value. To me, when I hold this and I smell it and I touch it, and I, it's in my hands... A surplus military rifle, for instance. There's a value there, a historical context value. But as soon as you stress a person financially, even if they still know it's there, they're less likely to invest in it. Now, when it comes into reloading equipment, modern firearms, modern guns, and stuff like that, this is how I feel about guns as an investment. Uh, they can save your life, they can feed you, and they're an excellent tool. And they hold their value better than most other things that you would buy that you would call a tool. If you buy a shovel and use it for 10 years, you probably can't sell it for what you paid for it. You buy a gun and use it for 10 years, you probably can. There are times when guns peak in price. There are certain guns that go up in value. There are certain guns that are highly sought after. But in the end, it's not. you cannot make a case for making it part of your, let's say, your broader 401k that I talk about. You know, which is not really about 401ks, but your broader retirement, you know, that includes things like silver and gold and physical possession. They just aren't. They are basically a way that you can, you can, you can buy something and use it and know that if you ever need money, you can get something back out of it. You're, you're not gonna get into a place where you can't go down to a local pawn shop with a, even just a plain Jane Remington 870 shotgun and get 150, 200 bucks out of it. You're always going to be able to get something for a gun. And that's something that it has that's not quite uh, there for many other things that we would like to believe that it is. But it's not. Don't bet your future on it. That's that's the short answer. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Brian in Tennessee with an expert counsel question for Stephen Harris. Is an AGM battery worth the extra money versus a flooded lead-acid battery in terms of self-discharge rate and number of deep discharges. Background, I own a 97 Jeep Wrangler that I love to death but don't get to drive very much. 
I know from Stephen's classes that I need to keep that battery topped off and have a Schumacher battery charger that I try to remember to connect up every time I drive it. However, sometimes I just forget to connect it, and next thing I know, the battery is dead. And so I'm just wondering if the extra money is worth it uh, for the AGM. Um, based on the size of the battery, it's about 50 to $60. So I'm wondering if I'd get my extra money's worth out of that. Thanks, Jack. I appreciate it. Talk to you later. Well, I can't think of a person better suited to answer that question that I know of in the world other than Mr. Stephen Harris himself. I sent his question to to him, sent your question to him. He was uh, good enough to answer it. And I'll play that for you now, and then I'll come back with another uh, question from another member of the audience. Brian in Tennessee. This is Steve Harris with the expert panel calling in to answer your question. The answer is yes, it's worth it. In this case, if, you, if you're going after an Optima battery, you would, which is an AGM battery, you'd want the yellow or blue top because these are deep cycle batteries. The red top is a starting, starting battery. I have advocated for quite some time that it makes sense to put to replace your starting battery in your car with a marine battery, unless you live in Minnesota and it's really cold. The difference is the deep cycle battery has less cold cranking amps than the starting battery does, but it's got plenty of cold cranking amps for most applications. That battery in your vehicle has to be sized for someone in Bemidji, Minnesota at a minus 20 degree Fahrenheit morning trying to go out and start his battery. The oil is going to be thick, everything is going to be frozen up, and it's going to take more cold cranking amps to start that vehicle. So unless you're in one of these extreme environments, you can get away with putting in a deep cycle battery in place of a starting battery. What this does for you is if you're using your car to power your house or your car as a generator, as we've spoken about many times, then it'll allow you to go down to a deeper depth of discharge and not hurt the battery. So you can go down to 50% depth of discharge on a marine battery, turn on the car, charge it back up, and your battery will be just fine. If you tried to go to 50% depth of discharge on a starting battery, you would start to do incremental damage to that battery, and it would get worse and worse over time. Now, you're going with an AGM battery. I'm recommending you can go with any deep cycle battery that fits within your battery compartment underneath your vehicle. The advantages of the AGM would be they have a little bit better depth of discharge tolerance than a regular marine battery does. Um, noticeable, measurable, but not that much. And they're very, very resistant to high vibration. They were originally developed for military aircraft, which are a very high vibration environment. So AGMs are good at that. If you're doing some crazy off-roading and stuff, AGM would be a definite go for that. Now, your real problem is not 
the battery. If you put an AGM battery into your vehicle, it will die just as quickly as your current starting battery is because you have a parasitic load. There are things in modern vehicles sitting there drawing a little bit of power all the time. The engine computer is one of them. The electronics to look for your key fob, pressing the button to open the door, is another one. There are all sorts of minor parasitic loads in the vehicle. Over the span of four, six, eight weeks, this parasitic load is enough to kill your battery in your vehicle. No matter if it's AGM starting or deep cycle, it's pulling a load. You'll go out and find a dead battery if you don't keep a charger on the vehicle all the time. Now, you can do the same thing I do with my 92 Dodge, sorry, with my 92 GMC pickup truck, and this truck runs on hydrogen, propane, natural gas, gasoline, and an E85 and E100. I don't drive it all that much recently, and so I disconnect the battery. I actually keep the, it's a wrench on top of the battery. I disconnect the side post, and when I go to start the vehicle, I pop the hood, and there's the wrench on top of the battery, and I wrench on the uh, cable, and away I go. It works just fine. Something that makes this easier is a battery disconnect switch. All you have to do is turn the knob a few times, and your battery is disconnected. This will prevent you from uh, discharging the battery, and you'll have a fresh battery pretty much all the time. If you, I would recommend charging it every three months with an, uh, a charger from the wall like you're doing. However, the battery disconnect switch works very, very well. Now, what am I talking about? Well, if you want to see a battery disconnect switch, you can go over to prep1234.com. That's P-R-E-P-1234.com and scroll all the way to the bottom and you will see the battery disconnect switch that I have up there for you to take a look at. I do believe they are at Walmart. Uh, they're definitely on Amazon. My link will take you over there. So go take a look at it, and this will really help you out a great deal. I use it. It works for me. You can use it, and it'll work for you. This is a great thing to have on your backup vehicle or your bug-out vehicle. So when you go to it, all you need to do is pop the hood, turn the knob a few times so it's now connected, and then go and start, and away you go. This is Steve Harris for the Expert Panel. For all of you new people, you can find everything I've done with Jack and all my free classes and everything at Stephen1234.com. Thanks, guys. Talk to you next week. Bye. Hey, Jack. Steve here from uh, Birmingham, Alabama, longtime listener and MSB member. I had a question for you about something uh, a little bit puzzling that's going on out in my garden. I've got a bed where I have an apple tree, it's about four years old, and surrounding it I've got these uh, quote-unquote like patio peaches. I think it was a bonfire peach is what it was. It's like a bush, and it produces small peaches. I I don't really like those plants very much. The peaches aren't really that useful, but uh, a couple of them are already succumbed to some sort of a a disease or a a pest, Uh, and what I see around the base of those those trees – or bushes is like a, a yellow kind of jelly-like material. And at first I assumed this was some kind of a fungus, but um, I also saw some sna- like what looked like little snail shells down there. So I'm wondering if the two are related, what that is, and specifically how I can prevent 
um, my apple tree from getting that, whatever it is, uh, because I don't want it to get sick um, and die. So uh, any advice that you would have for me on that would be greatly appreciated. Thank you very much. Bye. If you're having some problem with the peach trees, it's probably it's probably not related to what you're seeing. I'm going to ask you to do something I don't do a lot with call-in. I'm going to ask you to follow up with me, and I'll give you more information based on this if you can do this for me. If you can send me a picture of this, I can give you a better answer. If it looks like spongy yellow dog vomit, It is a common fungus. It has nothing to do with the fact there's a peach tree there, and it happens from time to time. I've seen it a lot of times. It freaks a lot of people out, um, but it doesn't really do anything. And so if this is what I'm talking about, even if it's kind of wet when you first see it, if you leave it alone, it almost dries to like a styrofoam consistency, uh, and it crumbles. And uh, I don't remember what they call it, but it's just no cause for concern. If it's more like a jelly and it stays that way, send me a picture of it because there's a couple different things it could be. And I don't even want to hazard a guess right now as to exactly what you're looking at. Peaches are one of the tougher crops to consistently get good yields from and to deal with pest uh, issues. The best strategy I've found is to go with early variety peaches. They seem to beat a lot of the pests to get in them. A lot of our late variety peaches around here, there's different flies and things like that to get into them. And a lot of times, even if there's not a worm in your peach, they make these little holes in the peach. And there'll be these little globules all over your peaches. And then by the time they're supposed to ripen, they just don't do quite so well. I will tell you that it is a very common thing with peaches. Have a great year, an okay year, a crappy year. A great year, an okay year, and a crappy year. And that's even with proper pruning and understanding which, which of your, your branches are going to fruit well for you and things like that. And I've seen that the, some of the best peach production I've seen have come from people growing trees from seed. Peaches produce well from seed that may not be an exact replica of the parent, but you're not an exact replica of your parent, but you're probably pretty good to go. Um, and the, the healthy root systems that come from a, a seed-grown peach uh, seem to do well, especially if planted directly into the ground. So that might be something you might try later on. This dwarf peach stuff, patio peaches they call them. Don't you believe it? Don't you believe it? Um, I planted one of these things in, in front of my house in Arlington, uh, not the, last, the one you guys knew about, but well, the one before I went to Pennsylvania. 14 years ago, I planted this tree. My wife and I were down that way recently, and we drove by the house just to see our old house. It was the first house we bought together. Uh, we, we, we rocked in at Y2K in that house, so it was probably 15 years ago. Um, and uh, we went to the front, you know, drove by the front yard. Couldn't look in the backyard where I planted some other trees, but I could tell that just from looking over the roof, at least one of them was doing pretty good back there. But I did a patio peach right up by the patio. That's where you'd think it would go. And a pecan right in the front yard. The pecan was cut off at about four foot high, a pretty big around trunk. It looks like it was dead to me. I don't know if they didn't take care of it right or what. This patio peach was about 12 feet tall, multi-trunked, and the trunks were anywhere between 9 and 14 inches in diameter. This thing was a big peach tree. Uh, very impressive looking, honestly. Um, so just, I don't know if that really pertains to your situation. I'm just telling people, when they tell you dwarf peach, patio peach, whatever, if you don't, if you don't control the growth, 
they will tend to grow quite a bit bigger than, I guess, the, the catalog says. And that's not the only place I've seen that happen. I'm just saying. Uh, properly pruned or grown in containers, I've seen them maintain themselves to these dainty little four-foot-tall bushes. Um, but some happen somewhere along year six or seven, and those that dwarfing rootstock that's there tends to find its way to get a little bit bigger, and they seem to take off, in my experience. I'm just saying. All right, with that. Uh, but, yeah, go ahead and send me a picture of this stuff if you can. Uh, send it to Jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Put TSPC in the subject line. And I'll see if I can figure out exactly what's going on there for you. Let's take another call. Actually, before we, you know, we're talking about plants, uh, I had a question come in for me by email, and I decided to defer to uh, my plant expert, Nick Ferguson. So I'm going to go ahead and play that. Nick will just uh, tell you what the question was, and uh, we'll get Nick's uh, expert panel uh, question taken care of today's show, and then I'll come back, and uh, i got a bunch more stuff to cover with you today. Hey there, this is Nick calling in to answer Brian's question about raising apple trees in a nursery. So Brian asks, when raising container-grown apple trees in a nursery, is it necessary to gradually transplant bench grafts from smaller to larger pots, or can we just plant them in a three- or five-gallon pot for their entire life in the nursery? That process is actually called potting up, just so you know. We're growing them to plant an orchard two years from now and trying to minimize labor and container costs in the nursery. So, Brian, the considerations need to be um, how many trees am I going to be dealing with and do I have the space for all these pots and is the cost of the potting soil to grow them in worth um, the extra size? So, depending on how many apple trees you're talking about and how many pots you're talking about, the, the potting soil can add up quick. So um, the benefit to planting them in a larger pot is going to be that you're going to have less root issues, less root problems with those plants. So absolutely, yes, you can plant them in as big of a pot as you want to. The bigger, the better. Um because the larger the pot is, the more room they will have to send their roots out laterally, and you won't have as many roots starting to girdle and encircle the pot. And that's something you definitely do not want, is girdling and encircling on your fruit trees. Because what can happen is you can have a healthy-looking tree, and it'll grow fine for a few years, maybe five or ten years. But eventually, if there's a one of those lateral roots is girdling the the root crown or that that root zone area it can actually um, suffocate the tree it can cut it off like a boa constrictor and you won't know because it's underground so you want to avoid root girdling and circling as much as possible and the way you do that is plant them in the largest pot that you can so you're just going to have to decide whether it is worth potting them up in those large pots or not due to space and financial restrictions. But I would say plant them in the largest pot that you can. And by doing that, you'll ensure that you have the least possible chance of root circling and girdling. So I hope that helps. Good luck with your apple trees. Uh, this has been Nick Ferguson with the Expert Council. Uh, calling in to answer that question and 
Any other questions that you have for plant propagation, let me know. I love answering them, and happy growing. Hello, Jack. My name's John. I live about 20 miles west of Harrisburg. I have a question for you involving uh, around uh, some spruce trees that I had on either side of my driveway um, about the first 500 feet or so on either side of the driveway. Uh, I've encountered some needle casts, and my intent was to get rid of the trees and replace them with something that would produce such as apple trees, pears, peaches, whatever might work best for my zone. Um, my question is there going to be any negative effects left over from the needle cast on the trees and also with them being evergreens? Am I going to run into any issues as far as preparing the soil? Is there going to be a high pH left over? Uh, I was looking for any suggestions on how to prepare this uh, area and what are some best practices to ensure survivability of the trees? Um, I look forward to hearing your answer, and I was turned on your show about six months ago from somebody that I work with, and I just really appreciate a lot of your philosophy, so thank you. Uh, well, people overreact to certain things, but when you look at an evergreen uh, and it's dropping needles, it will have an acidifying effect on soil. Now, here's a couple things to consider before you worry about it too much. Whatever they're going to do, the day that you cut them down, they will stop doing it. Their root systems in the ground, the dry needles that are already there, they've done what they're going to do, and you're not going to have anything get much more acidic than it already is other than the basic biological conditions of your soil and where it is. The next thing to consider is that having soil tending toward the acid state is generally better for almost, almost not all things, but almost everything agricultural than, than soil tending from the neutral to the alkaline. Uh, in other words, neutral 7.0, that's dead center, not acid, not, not alkaline. And if you gave me a choice between a soil pH of a 5 or an 8, I'll take the 5 every day. And this is from a guy that's got some soil on my property with, with pH as high as 8.2 in some areas. Uh, and, and working very hard to go to the acidic state. Uh, so, yeah, it's not as big of an issue as you might think. Most of your fruit trees, plums, apples, cherries, etc., do really well with soil pHs from about 5.0 to 5.5 on up to right around 6.8. That's a great range for them. Apples are very happy there. Apples are so adaptable. Apples grow in alkaline soil. Apples grow in acidic soil. Apples just, they're, they're one of the tougher trees we have. People think they're fragile. They're not. But most of what you'd want to grow there should do well. A lot of the shrubs that would be good, so you plant your trees and then plant a shrub layer in there uh, for a northern climate. If you've got spruce, I don't remember if you said where you're from or not, but I, I just know you're in the north. You wouldn't have spruce if you were in Georgia. Um, and uh, so you're looking at things like currant, gooseberry, blueberry, highbush cranberry, blackberry, which will handle alkaline, but all of those things... Acid is great. They're happy. Blueberry, uh, high brush cranberry, both of those would do wonderful with that acidic state. You, you actually might find that you put blueberries in there to do really good for a couple of years, begin to wane a little bit, because without that recharge of those needles, uh, you're going to start drifting back to whatever your main soil profile is. 
hopefully though with a lot of mulch and bacterial and microbial action you'll stay toward the acidic side of things and you probably will you want to go into a fungal dominated state uh, with any type of food forestry which really is the, you see fungal dominated you think wow that's a lot more fungus than bacteria basically if you get to kind of a one to one where you're about one fungus to one bacteria you consider that fungal dominant bacteria just reproduce a lot faster there's a lot more of them and a lot more kinds Right, so a one-to-one, you're, you, you've done it. You're in good shape at that point from a soil science standpoint. So lots of mulching, chop and drop, things like that, compost, compost teas. along. And, and here's the, the good part of what you're doing. One, you're taking something that's not very productive and turning it productive. Bang on. Two, you're using an edge. A lot of people wouldn't see it that way, but if you got, I know exactly, I could almost draw a picture of what your house looks like. You got a long, this is a northern thing, a long driveway, and either on one side or both sides, spruce trees about every 10 feet. And they grow big and tall, and they have fronds all the way to the ground. They create these nice windscreens, and you drive in, and you feel, it's, it's a beautiful thing, really. They are pretty. I, it's a, it would be a hard thing for me to cut down because they are so pretty. Um, but again, you kind of want to get off of that. Well, your edge, as you've got a lawn edge, which think of it like pasture or meadow, Coming up to a hardscape, a driveway, whether it's packed gravel or concrete or tar top, whatever, uh, it's, 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 it's an edge. And most people, when they put a driveway in, may slope it slightly away from the house. You put them down toward the house unless you have to due to elevation change. It's the only thing you can do. But usually if they're relatively flat, and usually you think north, line with spruce trees, relatively flat driveway into a house, and then you crown the driveway. So it's a little, even if it slopes toward the road or what have you, it, it usually sheds water in both directions toward the edge. So with a little, little tiny lip berm following your driveway line, basically you're creating a swale base to put your trees into. Uh, so I think it's a great place to do that. Um, and you have to decide for yourself, do you willing to cut these spruces down? I would be. I'd have to fight my wife to do it, I'll tell you that, though. And there's ways you could maybe take out every other tree and do a lot of shrubbery. Because if you like blueberries, they will blow up in that environment. If you like high-brush cranberry, it'll blow up in that environment. If you want to bring in some things like some Nanking bush cherry or Hanson's bush cherry, those will blow up in that environment. They will just coexist beautifully. So... You might selectively take some out. You might do the whole thing in. Don't sweat the acidity. But I would do this. I would get a simple soil pH test kit. And, I, and a lot of the soil test kits you can buy in stores and all, they're not that good when you're talking about nitrogen, potassium, phosphorus, mineral counts. But usually the, the pH is, is something very easy to test. So just test the pH. Test the pH of the soil underneath the needles, underneath your trees. Test the pH of the soil about... Five foot past the drip line of the trees, uh, the, you know the the, the the trees where the trees have the needle drop effect, and then go about twenty feet away and test the soil there. See how much pH variability you have, and see what environment you're in. If you happen to test the soil under the trees and you're looking at a five five, and then you go test the soil on the other side of the property, and your natural soil profile in the area is like a seven two seven four, uh, and you're toward the alkaline state which probably isn't the case, but if it is, you might really want to leave some of them in place because that acidity is a very good thing in that situation. If your natural soil profile is like 5560 and the stuff underneath those trees is like 
4.8, then removing them might be a good thing. You might be a little bit too much toward the acidity, though your blueberries and stuff like that are still going to blow up there. So there's the best information I can give you with the information you've given me. Let's take another call, but do not sweat this. If you just want to, if you want to get rid of them and plant, go for it. I would not try to grind the stumps or whatever, cut them level to the ground. You may have trouble initially then digging holes because they will put out pretty interlocking roots. But I would cut them with a chainsaw as you dig up your, your holes for your trees or whatever and leave them there. You got a natural hugel culture. It's going to work really well for you over time. Uh, make sure when you cut them flush to the ground, a great idea is to cut an X into them to so keep them from coppicing back and then put a couple inches of mulch over them and they, they're probably done for at that point. Let's take another call. Jack, I uh, have some property that I purchased and am in the process of building a house on it. I was out exploring yesterday and found a well. It's um, a concrete, about two inch, uh, excuse me, two foot in diameter, um, down about 40 feet. I haven't uh, tested the water yet. I haven't, I don't know how deep it is. Um, uh, one of the biggest problems is there's only a old piece of plywood covering it. I know I need to get it locked down. Um, and I need to do a few things before actually using it. But is is there anything else that you could suggest um, that I do um, other than the obvious? I it's quite a ways from the house, uh, so using it for house water um, would be a little difficult. But uh, I should be able to use it to water the garden and animals. Um, let me know. Thanks for your show and everything you do. Have a good one. I mean, I can't tell you much more than what you just said for yourself. Uh, first of all, get the water tested. Make sure there's nothing in there that's pathogenic or a problem. Uh, and understand that when you look at that aspect of things, there's things that animals can drink that kill us plumb dead. Uh, certainly that would make us sick that animals don't have a problem with. And there's certain things you know, in water that animals shouldn't be drinking. Uh, but a lot of the things from a... Uh, uh, a biologic aspect uh, in water that would harm a human being, a, a duck or a chicken or a dog or a horse, it won't hurt them. There, now, there's other things that can, specifically true toxins and things like that. So get the water tested. Definitely get a good cover for the well. And then you got to figure out how, well, how are you going to get water out of it. This sounds like an old school drop a bucket down at well to me. I'm a little confused because you said you don't know how deep it is, but you told me how deep it was. He said it's about 40 feet deep, but you don't know how deep it is. Uh, I don't really under, uh, maybe what you mean is about 40 feet down in the water. So this is a static well, not a pressurized well. And about 40 feet down you get to water and, uh, but you don't know how deep, deep it is after that. Maybe that's what you mean. I, I'm not really sure. Um, I think it's a good thing you found it. Uh, from a safety aspect to make sure you make it a lot safer and uh, from another aspect uh, to, to you know you have it now as an asset it would be great if there's any way to get any kind of power there uh, to be able to pump water and move it a little bit more effectively uh, so that's something I would look at how can you do that and if it's uh, something that you might put a big holding tank somewhere that you can then use volumetric and gravi gravity pressure to feed uh, it's very possible that you could get uh, one of the sun pumps, you know, solar pumps that basically just runs when the sun's up. 
Uh, and you could, you know, uh, acquire a significant amount of head pressure just from gravity and volume uh, to then move the water. That might be your best bet because you're probably not going to want to be out there, you know, lowering buckets down with the old school way or, you know, turning a hand pump or a hand crank. So those are my thoughts with it. But definitely get a sample of water out of it and uh, have it examined. And there's a couple things you can do with water that has uh, issues. Sometimes a well can just be shocked. In other words, there's a, a kind of a, a bloom going on because the water hasn't been moving and hasn't been used, but yet it's exposed so that uh, I've seen people shock wells with bleach for instance, and uh, after a couple of days you test it again and things are all cool and copacetic as long as that water continually gets used. Uh, sometimes it has to be done frequently. Uh, but get a good water analysis and, and get it secured. I've always believed that, you know, you find concrete well. A lot of times these things, the concrete only comes up about a foot. Uh, a lot of times not just covering it, but bringing it up higher so that it's just not something somebody could stumble into is, is probably a really good idea or put some fencing around it or something like that, because we don't need any more stories of little Timmy falling down the well. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Raymond. Do you see the hospitals coming under federal control and being becoming federal property the way airports are now with this pandemic uh, problem that is going to be ongoing not necessarily Ebola, but whatever comes next. Uh, so anyway, that's my question, and uh, I'll uh, hopefully hear your answer in the next uh, listener feedback show. Thanks a lot, man. Talk to you later. Well, first of all, I'll tell you this. I operate under the belief that the federal government wishes to take over Anything and everything that it can find an excuse to take over, as long as it can figure out a way to extract and extort money to do so. So an interesting thing would be to ask yourself this. Uh, under the Obama plan that was recently released, that under its current design doesn't have a snowball's chance in hell, um, is the federal government in effect trying to take over the state-level community college system? Think about that. So Obama says, here's what we'll do. Well, federal government will step in and offer 75% of the cost of tuition to cover tuition for our uh, young people who will work for it. To, if you want to work for it, go work for it. Um, go ahead. I mean, you know, getting scholarships, if you want to work for it, you need to have better than the C average that Obama wants people to have for this. But you can get scholarship money, especially enough to go to a community college. Come on. Uh, especially to replace that tuition. But anyway, we'll work for it. The government will put up the money. Well, what he's actually saying is the government at the federal level will put in 75%, and then the states are going to be on the hook for 25%. Meaning the state of Texas or the state of Florida is going to be told by the federal government, you have to fund this. And we're not going to give you the money. We're going to make you, it's what's called an unfunded mandate. Now, even though the federal government then is, see, that's already a takeover, isn't it? Let's say I came to you and I said, you know what we're going to do? You and me are going to buy a piece of property together. And you said, but I don't want to buy a piece of property with you, Jack. And I said, well, you know what? I got a gun to your head right now, which is how the state does everything that it does. By putting a gun to your head, whether you want to accept that or not, without the ability with men, for men with guns to show up and make you comply, a state-issued mandate means nothing. Everything a state does is at the point of the gun 
with a threat of violence for noncompliance. So I say, I got a gun in your head right now. So I think you and I are going to buy this property together, right, Tom? And you might say, well, uh, okay. Especially if it's like 10 guys with guns to your head that all listen to me. So now we're going to buy this property together. So at that point, I've already taken over, have I not? And I say, but you know what? I'm not a bad gangster. I'm going to, you know, it's a $100,000 property. I'm going to put in $75,000. You're going to put in $25,000. You go, I don't have $25,000. And I look over at my boys with the guns, and they go and clack, click the hammers back. And you go, I, 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 I'll, I'll find it. I'll, I'll, I'll get it. Don't shoot me. Okay? This is what the federal government wants to do to the states right now. Just so you understand. We'll shit it. We'll get it. Okay. So you come up with your twenty-five grand. I come up with my seventy-five grand. We go in and close on that property. You think I'm going to treat you like an equal in the deal after all of that? Hey, Tom, I want this property done this one. You go, hey, I'm a, you know, you made me do this, but I'm a co-owner in this. I'm a stakeholder. And you go, you know what, Tom? Let's take a vote. Let's have, this is like a company now. Let's have a shareholder's vote. I put up three-fourths of the money. You put up one-fourth of the money. Let's vote. I get three votes. You get one. I want an outbuilding over there, and I want you to pay for 25% of that, too. And you say, I vote no. And I go, I vote yes and yes and yes. I win. And this is, this is what the maneuvering is. Behind this unfunded, this is exactly the same thing. This is what the federal government wants to do to the states and community colleges right now. We're going to fit three quarters of the bill. You're going to fit one quarter of the bill. So we are putting up the bigger piece, and therefore we're in control. I don't think that the federal government would allow the crisis of a pandemic necessarily to go to waste to further the agenda of more control of the medical system, but they're going to control the medical system and take over the same way. With money. See, because it's easy to extort money from people weaker than you. And it's easier to offer up more money during the extortion when you print your own money and steal the rest of it. So since the federal government can just take it away from us whenever they want to, and when they're short of it, they can just print it, well, if they want to take something over with money, they have that at their disposal. So I think it's far more likely that you'll see us moving toward that single-payer system that every liberal and their brother seems to think would be a metaphorical you know, a utopia, um, which will result in even worse care level, but it will be done economically. Because that's the federal government's greatest weapon is money. And this was always the fear from the foundation of the republic. The southern states that had less economic wealth We're always afraid that the federal government would be able to use the collective wealth of the total republic, and specifically the states with the most money would be able to control the states with the least money, because they would have to borrow and they would need the Fed to help them do it. Well, in our modern day and age, that's just not the case. It's not like New York can make Georgia do something, even though New York has a dramatically higher GDP. And New York is, is subject to just as much thumb by the federal government as Georgia's. And frankly, New York seems to want more of it. They, they seem to be in love with passing laws and regulations and mandates on themselves. So they sure don't mind it when the federal government turns around and does it. But the federal government is like the, the, the old proverb with the camel's nose in the tent. The second the federal government was able to make a case 
for the very first time we ever had an unfunded mandate. And it, and it held. It, it, it was only a matter of time before the camels in the room. So I think the federal government is looking to take over every aspect of education, of health, of nutrition, food, and energy that it can. I think it wants to control as much as it can. It is like a Frankenstein's monster come to life. So do you, do I think, you know, that you, one day you might, when you go into a hospital to protect us from terrorism, see a guy in a blue shirt, you know, like TSA there to make sure you're not bringing a gun into a hospital? Yeah, I think you might. But I think it'll all be warped into this whole already planned takeover. And remember, in 2010, I told you flatly, Obamacare would pass, it will be a disaster, it is designed to ruin what's left of the health insurance industry so that the people will beg for a complete federal takeover. We're on target for that to happen by the year 2020. People who are absolutely opposed to it are going to beg the federal government to fix it. And fix it they will, by completely taking over it. Sort of. Obamacare for all, more expense to everybody. It just matter. It, it just you know where is the money coming out of your pocket from? Which pathway does the money take into the coffer? That's where we're headed. With that, let's take another call. I wish I had a better answer for you, but yeah, that's where we're headed. Jack, Richard, I just wanted to ask you a quick question on what to do for my long-term food storage that has now been in a frozen garage. Background was. Moved all the stuff into the garage as it, uh, the freeze caught me uh, a little bit early and it's continued. And I've just left it in there because since it's continued to stay frozen, I don't have a rush on it right now. But as we're going to start moving into spring, I know that as that starts to thaw in there, it's going to form condensation and all that kind of stuff in the bucket. My plan was, was to move it down into the basement, probably one or two buckets at a time. Open them up, put a fan in there, let the fan run on them for about 24 hours replace the um, desiccate packets and the O2 absorbers, and reseal it. I was wondering if there's a better way of doing this or if I've just kind of screwed myself a little bit. I was wondering if you uh, wanted to put any input into it, and I'd appreciate it. Thank you. Bye. Well, if it was probably stored in the first place, you may not have to do anything. Here's why. It should have been stored in an airtight, uh, moisture-proof manner. So if it's inside a bucket, you can only get so much condensation in there based on what's in there to condensate in the first place. So if it was stored with O2 absorbers, and it was stored with a desiccant, and you had it mylar wrapped or what have you, uh, odds are right now ain't nothing happened to it. It's probably fine. What you may want to do is bring one bucket in the house, let it sit there for the temperature to equalize and into the internal temperature, give it a couple, three days, Open it up and inspect everything. And then it may make sense to add a new O2 absorber, desiccant, et cetera, because now you've opened it. Move it to wherever you want to keep it. But when you initially open it, if you examine everything and everything seems to be in good shape and you don't seem to have any moisture content issues or anything like that, you don't have any partially rehydrated nothing, you don't have much of water beading up inside of there, um, then you're probably not going to have a problem. Uh, if you have condensation at all, it's probably going to be on the outside. So this is not a best practice to move your long-term food storage between wide swings in temperature, below freezing room temperature, above room temperature, back. This is not a best practice. 
but it should not be a major issue. Why don't you do that for me? Why don't you bring in one of the one of the buckets, uh, just one of your choice, give it a couple days inside, open it up and inspect it, and get back with us and let us know what happened. And when you do, email me and let me know. Uh, if anybody else has done this and uh, ever had a problem or not a problem with it, let, let me know. I'd love to hear about it in the, uh, the uh, comments for episode 1506. Jack, here's a question. A friend of mine and I were talking about pigs. He had suggested that I build the pig run kind of around the chicken house and the chicken run, suggesting that the pigs, as they grew, would ward off other types of predators. Curious what you think. Thank you. Well, on some levels it would work. Even uh, a half-grown young pig, especially a pack of them, is probably going to be pretty aggressive towards something like a, uh, a fox or a raccoon or something like that trying to get in. I mean, a, a hot wire at the bottom and top of the fence is going to do a lot for you anyway because you have to fence you know, these animals to be able to control them in the first place. So there would be some deterrent there. And, uh, yeah, a pig is a pretty vicious creature. Uh, let's put it this way. If you're working with pigs, you don't want to fall down in front of them. Uh, there's been people literally eaten by their pigs. Uh, it does happen, as gruesome as it sounds. It's not, it's not something that every pig's going to do immediately, but it's, it's happened, especially with big old production, you know, style hogs. Uh, there's one story a few years ago I covered where a guy fell in, To the, the pigsty, and they, they killed him and ate him. So it, it, they're, they're, they're pretty badass creatures. Let's put it that way. As I said earlier, talking about the feral ones, they pretty much eat, fight, and make more pigs. That's what pigs do. So th on that aspect, it'd be somewhat limitedly, limited in effectiveness, but it would work to a degree. Um, your greatest predation by land-based creatures, though, is going to happen at night, something getting into the coop. Right, uh, foxes, you might see some out during the day, but generally you don't see them out during the day that much. Raccoons, you don't see out during the day that much. And when it comes to your chickens, they're the two things, uh, other than stray dogs or maybe coyotes, uh, that you, you tend to see take the most amount of chickens. Now, if you're way out, so to speak, with a lot of coyotes, they can be pretty active during the daytime, but even them, they're going to be most active in the morning, the evening, and at night. Uh, so... If you had the pigs located somewhere that to get to the coop, you got to go through the pigs, that might be just as well. Because your biggest predator on chickens during the day, you know what it is. It's the, you know, the avian kind. It's your hawks and your, 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 your falcons, your eagles, things like that. It's your birds of prey. It's your raptors. So uh, what is a pig going to do to, to ward off Cooper's hawk? It might be a little bit. If the hawk sees this big animal moving around, there's a certain amount of self-preservation instinct that that big thing wants to eat me. But let me ask you a question. How good do you think a hawk's eyes are? There's a reason you call it hawkeye. Very, very good. So, And they're also intelligent birds. Uh, a hawk, all raptors, are uh, to be able to function and survive the way they do, they have to be intelligent. So it may not take this... You know, the typical hawk, that long to work out, hey, I see that big thing there. But it never goes there because it can't get there. That fluffy-looking bird thing that I want to eat there, let me take a pass at this and see what happens. Yeah, yeah, I think I can pull this off. And once it eats one chicken, 
It's going to keep coming back. So it's not going to help with that. I don't believe long term. You certainly can't commingle them. Pigs will eat chickens. Don't you think they won't? They will damn sure not. Now, if you have a pig that was trained that a chicken is its friend, I'm sure there's somebody somewhere, you know, that can walk their pigs right next to their chickens. But in general, pigs eat chickens. And they just do. By the way, chickens eat chickens. I just want to point that out too. So I'd say you have to look at it more this way. How, and this is the bigger lesson here. How would this function in the total, totality of your system? In other words, so I have this moat, this pig moat, okay? It's going to be a muddy muck hole. And I'm going to have to keep throwing lots of litter in there because the pigs are going to muck it up. If they're going to be confined anyway, if I'm not going to paddock them or what all anyway, then it doesn't really matter. Is it going to be a night holding facility? So is it going to be more along the lines of chickens and pigs come out during the day to do their own thing, and at night when the pigs go to bed, they go to bed in this, this moat-style area, and it is specifically to keep away nighttime predators. Okay, that seems to function better. The other thing, though, is now I've got this long, narrow, round strip full of pig crap. How am I going to deal with the waste? What kind of a nutrient flow is it going to create? So I think you have to look at it more in... In your total homestead system, your design of your total homestead, call it permaculture if you're me, or call it anything you want to, just call it your, your overall layout, how does it function? How many ways in and out are there? How do you get the if, if the pigs are not going to live there all day long, how do you get them in and how do you get them out? How do you avoid conflicts with your poultry? So if the pigs are out, the chickens are out, uh, unless you have, like again, some kind of pig that's been trained not to eat a chicken, and I'm not going to trust it. I'm going to tell you that right now. I'm not going to trust pigs to not kill a chicken. Think of it like you're raising a pack of puppies, dogs, that are tougher than dogs and more prone to do what the hell they want than a dog and less trainable because you're not going to put the time and effort into training them that you would a dog. And you're going to have a pack of puppies, immature pigs, living with chickens. What do you think is going to happen? It only takes one pig to decide he wants to eat a chicken. The other pigs come figure it out. And once they figure it out, you know, just saying. So I know somebody's going to write me and tell me you have pigs coexisting with chickens, and you probably have a couple adult pigs that are well-fed and well-trained or something like that. But uh, a pack of pigs you're growing for meat, <laughs> I, I just see it as being chicken chompers. So if you're going to paddock shift your pigs, why are you even putting them away? If you're going to confine them, generally confined pigs, if you're going to grow them in a confinement, you're better off with like a concrete floor. It's just easier to clean it out, and then you're not looking at so much of a moat. So I think I'd have to know more about the totality of your design to advise you, but I think if you think about the totality of your design, you know, moving them in and out, how long they're going to be there, how much land there is, where's the nutrient flow, what do you do with their waste, how do you deal with the muck, etc., you'll find your own answer. That's just smart design. Uh, I got one more question today, and um, this is not an easy one. And I was very tempted to make today's show short, because we're in the middle of a product launch, I got to get ready this weekend to go to Arkansas, etc. And something told me to keep digging through the calls, and I came to this call. Uh, I'm going to have an answer for this call that's both tough and sympathetic. And those of you that would just be tough, the guy has a valid point about the situation his generation's in. So listen to this call with an open mind and an open heart, 
And then I'm not going to pretend to have all the answers, but in my last call today, I'm going to do my best to address these very real, uh, very true concerns that this young man is expressing. Hey, Jack, this is Steve West from Colorado. Hey, <clears throat> so my question is, besides going self-reliant, self-sufficient-esque, and saving money, what is the younger generation supposed to do? By that I mean under 30 to 35. Uh, 35 might be a little, little older. They might have a better foothold. But what I mean by this is there are members of this audience uh, that are doing all those things. They are becoming self-reliant. You know, they are planting their own gardens and their own food. and They're still struggling. I mean, we're barely surviving. Um, we've cut everything out of our lives. We've tried to do the best we can. We have no consumer debt. And we're still, lack of a better term, the generation's kind of dying. I mean, half of uh, friends I knew from college and from high school, they're all back with their parents. They're staying in their hometowns and apartments. And some of the, you know, like I said, some of the people from this audience, they barely afford groceries, even though they are growing their own food. We're struggling so hard. I, I, I don't know how you can save, you know, Any money. It goes right back out. Everything is rising faster than we can make it. You know, and this year I'm going to probably be doing 900 to 1,500 broilers for meat because there's a processing plant going in up here. And I'm going to do the processing myself as well, but we're still dying here. We're still struggling. We're still not able to afford hardly anything. You know, and, and the older generations, they... You know, I hate to point blame anything, but sorry, guys, you had better opportunities. And there are opportunities out there now. I'm taking advantage of every single one of them. But they're not the same. I, I've seen that growing up. And my father, he, he got a foothold in a construction company, ended up buying parts of it, became a shareholder, started another one. But with regulation now, with, with the capital needed to start businesses, you know, we're still doing it, but... I'll tell you what, it's not near as easy as I saw the people that did this 20 years ago doing it, <clears throat> or near as easy as 10 years ago. And we had three different recessions that nobody talks about between 2001 and now. And the construction industry is one of the biggest factors that shows you when everything starts slowing down, and I watched every single one of them. And I've watched prices go up, and I've watched wages stay the same. It doesn't matter, minimum wage, I don't really care. The fact of the matter is, is If I go on a construction job site today, I'll get paid the same as I was as a 16-year-old in high school. That that hasn't changed. It's not a minimum wage thing. It's just what it is. We're doing our best, but I don't know. I, slow economic death spiral marches on. Anyway. All right. I am going to, at first, acknowledge that much of what you say is true. And it can be summed up in a term that I believe I coined called downward class migration. And everything you've said is wrapped up into a video that I did on this several years ago before anybody was talking about this, explaining exactly what you're saying and exactly why it's true. And I'm extremely sympathetic to how you feel that you're struggling I am watching and allowing my son to struggle much the same way right now 
Though I am offering him opportunities to do something, to do something about it, I refuse to do it for him. It's here's an opportunity, do something with it or don't. Here's another opportunity, do something with it or don't. Here's some advice that you could do if you don't want to take an opportunity that I have there for you, do something with it or don't. And I'll let it go because he's a 25-year-old young man. He's free to do what the hell he wants. Okay? So it's not that I'm immune to this, okay? But if I just reinforce the problems for you with your struggling question, and for every young person out there that just said to themselves, I feel exactly the same way, I'm not doing you a damn bit of good to help you. So the first thing I have to do is tell you that when you say this is a problem for your generation, you're saying it with your limited ability to see the truth, and it is not a problem for your generation. It is a problem for every American out there right now who hasn't adapted to and overcome the problem. There are broke 40-year-olds, there are broke 50-year-olds, there are broke 60-year-olds, there are broke 70-year-olds that feel exactly the same way you do. Okay, So it's not your generation's problem. Your generation's just looking at it from a standpoint of, I don't even have a start yet, and it's already that way. But there are all kinds of people who took the opportunities you were talking about your father took that watched their companies crumble out from underneath them in the last 10 years. That are 50, and I'll put it to you this way, they're a whole lot more effed than you are. I would much rather be a broke 30-year-old right now than a broke 50-year-old. Okay, so the first thing you have to do is, on some levels, vent your frustration, understand how screwed up everything is, feel bad about it, and then pull your ass up and stop having a pity party for yourself because it sucks so bad to be 30. I wish I could be 30 right now. I wish I could be 20 right now and know what I know. Because I'm going to tell you the other side of this. You say it's not, there's the same opportunities aren't there. Correct. There's less opportunities. Incorrect. There are not less opportunities today. There are more. That it costs more money than ever to start a business. Incorrect. Businesses can be started with even inflation adjustment for less money today than any time in history. You say, I'm taking advantage of every opportunity that's out there. No, you're taking advantage of every opportunity that you see. Not every If you were taking advantage of every opportunity that existed, you'd be doing better. I don't know how much better, but better. Okay. That is not to say that any of this is easy. That is not to say that your feelings are not justified. But when you are in this state of defeatism, you can either remain in this state of defeatism, or you can do something about it. So you have to look around and say to yourself, Yes, the same opportunities aren't there, so don't pursue the same course. The construction jobs don't pay well. Well, don't go get one of those unless it's the only job you can get. And don't believe for a minute that things were so much easier back when Jack was 20. When I moved to Texas, I was 21 years of age, and the first job I took was for a warehouse uh, for a company called Home Interiors and Gifts, and I made $5.50 an hour as a temporary worker. Five fifty an hour. Well, that was way back in the old days. That was in 1993. Okay? 1993. There was no internet. 
There was no way to make a living off of something like a blog. There was no such thing as Kickstarter, Indiegogo, and funding platforms that could put you in touch with people that would help you make something happen. There was no such thing as things called a makerspace where people are building businesses from these, these, these things that you pay as much for as a gym membership for and have access to things like computer-generated design and CNC machines and people there that for a few bucks will teach you how to use them. None of that existed. None of it existed. The, the entire movement towards sustainable agriculture and the niche market that it creates where you can take a bird that you've raised on pasture and sell it for 20 to 25 bucks didn't exist. No one would have paid you $20 for a chicken in 1993. They would have looked at you like you had a deer crawling out of your ass if you would have asked them for it. So there are more opportunities today They're just different, and they require a new level of thinking. There were no Internet billionaires in 1993, because there wasn't no Internet yet. AOL wasn't even spamming us with disks. But don't think I don't understand. Don't think I don't get it. Don't think that my generation, just the, the one just a little bit older than yours, didn't feel the same way When we were in our 20s and looking at jobs and realizing everything paid shit. And don't think our parents didn't feel that way. And don't think our grandparents didn't feel that way. And don't think that the entire history of America isn't the story of generational struggle to be understood by both the generation before you and the generation after you. Because if you've learned anything from the history segment, it's all the same. What should you do? The honest answer is there's no way I can tell you that. There's no way I can tell you that. There's no way I can give you an answer to that. But what I will tell you is there is an opportunity that's right for you that you can make you successful. Put money in your pocket and give you a toehold in the right direction. I'll put up my video for you today on downward class migration and, and, and yourself and anybody else that feels like you that's a little bit irritated with me with what I'm saying right now. When you watch that, you'll see I, I, I get it. And I'm telling you it's going to get worse. And I'm telling you, a lot of you are going to get run over by it. You're not going to figure it out. And I'm telling you that many of us have. It's not just because of where we're at. It's not just because of the opportunities we have. But it's a mental shift that makes a determination that I have value and I can create value. And no matter what happens in my life, and don't think that everything I ever touched turned to gold. Because I've had failures, and I've had failures since I started this. Things I've tried to get going that didn't work. Still worth doing. Still worth trying. And I've had things that have become incredible successes. But once you know that, and I, if I could tell you the secret, like say these five words or read this book and it'll happen for you, I would. But, but, but it doesn't exist that way. All I can tell you is there is a mental shift that occurs where people change their paradigm about the concept of wealth, monetary creation, and entrepreneurship, where they go from employee to employer, or they go from employee to contractor, or they go from employee to self-employed. And once they figure it out, 
If they've really figured it out, they never go back. You know, I said there were people that built construction companies, remodeling companies, things like that, that have gone broke. They were people that never really got it. They were what my old mentor, Frank Madden from Garrett Com said, a turkey can fly in a tornado. You hit a boom just right, you go into something just right, you have a basic rudimentary skill set, you go into carpentry and building, and there's stuff being built everywhere, there's more work than anybody can handle, all of a sudden you have a company, but you're still acting like an employee, you don't really understand the rules of business, you don't really understand the concept of business ownership, so when you start to see, hey, we're heading for the cliff of a recession, you don't do shit about it, you think everything will just get better, and I can tell you when I know an entrepreneur is about to have her business fail. When I talk to an entrepreneur and they say, well, when things pick up, things will get better. I just, at that point, you couldn't get me to invest a dime in that person's business. I know they've already signed their own death warrant. They don't know it yet. You're waiting for things to pick up for your business to recover. Your business is going to die. It's actions that you take that increase a business's viability, sustainability, and longevity. So I believe the number one thing you can do to adapt to this future is to either become a business owner or someone that's very specialized with self-employment or contracting. That's the Because that is the only way that you are going to be immune to things like wages and, and, and things like that. And they are making it harder. Of course they're making it harder. They don't want people like me out there, right? They don't want, they don't want the successful people you know. They don't want them out there. They don't want them telling you this shit. They don't want them telling. They don't want those people telling you, "Hey, fight back. Don't give up. Give the world two giant middle fingers every morning when you wake up if you have to. Put a hole in a wall if you have to. Do whatever it takes to have that fighting spirit and say, "I will not accept." this reality, this way, because someone else says it's this way. They don't want that, because then you can't be controlled. What they want you to do is give the hell up, figure out how to get on the dole, and let the people that are still willing to work pay for your ass, and become part of the system. Or get a mundane job that's just good enough to barely get by, and be grateful you have it. Shut the hell up, and go on with life, and live a pitiful existence. That's what they want. Because you're easy to control. That's why there's so many regulations. Because when they see somebody that says, screw this, I'm going to do this, they don't like it. Because if enough people do that, all of a sudden it takes on a life of its own and it becomes unstoppable. They don't want that either. I don't know exactly what you should do. But I know that you should do. Sometimes you take a job that sucks because it pays a dollar an hour more. Sometimes you have to partner up with other people to cut costs and expenses. I don't know your individual situation. I know that you're not I know that you're not lazy. I know that you're not unwilling to work. Anybody that would say that about you is an idiot. If you've raised 10 chickens and processed them to yourself, and you hear somebody say, I'm going to do it with a thousand, and you think that person's not willing to work, you are, you are just sub, sub intelligent beyond words, because the amount of work necessary to do that, to maybe make $10,000 of profit, is a lot. But it's a step in the right direction. What else does it tie into? You're going to do that. What else are you going to do? 
What's the long-term plan? Where are you doing it? Are you leasing land? Do you own the land? Are you investing land? Is it your parents' land? What's the long-term play? Our current generation is lost. It's lost because it's been sold and believed a lie. And we that are in our late 30s and 40s, we believe the same lie. And many of us hit the opportunities right that were still there, and they springboarded us somewhere. But those of us, even that hit the right opportunities, if you didn't capitalize on it back then, you don't have it now. I know people, personally, that built companies into multi-million dollar companies that if they hadn't put some of that money away would be on the street right now. Their businesses are shot. Because they relied on things staying the way that they were. I know some people who did very well for themselves in the 90s who are working menial jobs right now. This isn't new. In 1996, when I was contracting to Lockheed Martin, I was ended up given the entire contract as the lead technician on it. I was 24 years old. The youngest person on my four-person crew that reported to me was a day older than my father. His name was Kurt. And he was a guy that kind of just drifted job to job to job, a guy you'd expect to be there. Another gentleman that was quite a bit older than my father was a guy named Daryl. Daryl had retired from Texas Instruments with one of those great retirements you just don't see anymore. And he was working for $12 an hour for a 24-year-old kid because he needed more money in the 90s when everything was great and wonderful and super. And there was another gentleman that worked for me named Gerald who had had really good jobs in the past. He was in his 50s working for a 24-year-old kid. And I got a guy named Cliff, an older gentleman that also was in some tough financial straits for other reasons. So we had people with good pathways, that failed and bad pathways that failed all working for a 24 year old kid because I'm special no because I was freaking hungry because I was freaking hungry because I felt like damn it I'm going to and I didn't have a pot to piss in back then I didn't make any money doing that but I got an education and I leveraged it and I leveraged myself in sales where you write your own freaking paycheck if you're good but it's not a path for everybody so I can't tell you how to leverage your pathway I can tell you this, you're at a point where you're going to break or make. I hear it in your voice. You're at a point where you're willing to say, screw this. This is all bullshit. It's all lies. And, and I, it used to be good, but it, 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 it isn't anymore. And there's nothing I can do. And just let whatever happens, happens. And I'm going to just go by like everybody else. Let me tell you the biggest lie told today. <laughs> the biggest lie is that it wasn't always this way. It used to be a lot easier. The opportunities are different. Some things were easier back then, and some things are easier now. But in the end, it's always been this way. The young, up-and-coming generation has always had to bust their ass to be respected. They've always had to create opportunities. They've always had to take opportunities. What happens is the young generation looks to the next generation up and the one after that, the two generations ahead of them, 
or I should say behind them, and they only see the people who've made it. And they don't see the millions who have failed. We have a tendency to look at that guy. He's got a nice house. I wish I had a house like that. I don't have a house like that. I can't do that. I can't do that. He, he did that when it was easy. No. He did it when it was hard in a different way. And the cumulative effect over time is what led to success. And that lie is murdering. You said you're dying. Well, you are. You're being murdered by that lie. Because it's letting you guys wait longer and longer and longer and longer and longer before you freaking gut check yourself and say, damn it, I've got to do something. That moment used to come right about the time you graduated high school. Especially if you didn't go to college. It was like, oh shit, I gotta do something with my life now. Now kids are sitting at 25, 26, 27, ain't done shit yet. I'm not saying you haven't, but I'm saying your generation. There's, there's lots of them out there. And you know why? Because they say, well, it's not your fault. Say it to yourself, it's not my fault. It's the environment, it's the situation. Let me tell you something. If I could be 21 today, with the same amount of money I had back then, which was almost nothing, but retain the knowledge I have and retain the fact that I've hit that point in my life where I flipped that switch and decided that I was responsible for my own life at a higher level and that I had value and that I could generate that value and use it to capture money. Okay? As as blunt as I can make it. If I could take that with me back to 21, and I'm in my 40s now, my early 40s, by this point in time, I'd be worth about $20 million at least. I know it's hard to believe. And the truth is, you can't do it. I can't do it. No one can do it. And I can't, I can't put it in a pill. I can't put it in a bottle. I can't put it in a book. I can't put it in words. What causes the person to go over that precipice and say, and, and change everything? But I can tell you this, the world looks different forever. The world looks different forever. And you don't go back. And there's people that have always had it. I have a friend named Sean Hipskind in Arkansas. He's run excavation companies, built homes, done all sorts of things. He's never had a job. Like working for somebody else's life. By 18, he was running his own businesses. For real, not the way that, that bigwigs lie about it when they write a life story and they were making money selling baseball cards or some bullshit when they were a kid. You know, most of those stories are crap. This guy that really was that way. I wish, I wish I could tell you that I was at 18 or 20 or 24. 24, I was still in the wrong mindset. I was just more aggressive and hungrier than everybody around me on my way on that path. I didn't have this moment until my 30s where I shifted, but I had the moment of I have to do this for myself when I was about 17. And I think that moment for people is happening later in life. And here's the, the sad story. You don't get the years back. If you're 30 and you've never had that moment yet, 10, 13, 15 years ago that you could have had it, gone. It's like planting a tree, dude. Best time to plant it was 20 years ago. The next best time is now. 
I feel like I'm yelling at you, but I don't know what else to tell you. I'm not trying to be hard on you. I'm trying to understand and at the same time say, all the understanding in the world won't fix shit. All the acknowledgement that in some levels you're completely right won't fix anything, won't solve your problem. Telling you I feel bad for you, I wish things were better, I wish things were different, won't help you. But what I know is it can be done because I watch people do it all the time. If you take somebody and tell them to walk a tightrope or something even easier like ride a bicycle, they've never done it before, and they try it the first time and bust their face, they'll swear to God it can't be done. And then if they try long enough and hard enough and they have that one moment where the understanding clicks, at that point it's over with. Until somebody cuts their legs off, they can do it again for the rest of their lives. Understanding how to manage your life, how to build value, how to create wealth, it's like that. And all of the gurus selling you bullshit about how to become that are lying, honest people. They're, 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 they're factual in telling you that it's possible, but they're lying when they tell you they can tell you how to do it. It's like trying to tell somebody how to have a religious experience. I can't tell you how to have a religious experience. You have to go on a quest for it and find it in your own way. Some people will find it through saying the uh, rose, rosary a thousand times, and some people will find it on the top of a mountain. And some people will never find it, and the quest is worth it, and some people will never look for it and don't give a damn. All of it's okay as long as you're open-eyed and you choose your own path. And damn it, I wish I could say, do X, Y, Z, repeat. X, Y, Z, repeat. Rub a lamp and wish for a genie and it'll all come true. I wish I could tell you that, but I can't. What I can tell you is there are opportunities out there for young people to do amazing things, and to be well rewarded for it. And there are so many that even trying to name them individually is pointless. You have to find the ones that are out there for you, and you have to capitalize on them, and you have to make something happen with them, and you have to fail and fail and fail and fail and fail and fail, and fail, and fail, and fail some more, and then fail some more, and have a little success, and then fail some more, and then think you're getting by, and have somebody knock you down, and then fail some more, and then really think you got it, and then get your ass kicked, and then fail some more, and then do it. That's the path. And if you don't do it that way, if you get lucky, if you hit it right, and you've never fallen down all those times, sooner or later, no matter what you find, there will be a shift that will take it from you. But the people that took the failure path and accepted it, accepted that it w the failure would be there, but they never accepted failure was a destiny. They adapt. They build legacies. Whether they're legacies just in their own families, or they're legacies that are global. Doesn't matter. As long as they're happy and they have what they want in their lives. You say you don't see how it can be done? I'll tell you that that's your choice.
you're either going to choose to see how you can do it, or you're going to choose to accept the way that it is. And I don't want you to think that I'm hard on you or I don't care about you because I've gone on for 25 minutes in this answer. And I don't ever do that. I have to really care and I have to really believe what I'm saying matters to answer a single question with this much. If I could put it in a bottle or a pill, I would. But I can't. But I will tell you, the day you decide to believe that I'm telling you the truth is the day that it will become your truth. And it is the day that you will begin to walk it. And it doesn't mean you won't get knocked down. It doesn't mean you won't fail. But it means you won't give a shit when you do. It means you'll start looking at life this way. When there's a door, it's not because life has another door opening for you somewhere. Take the freaking hinges off. Knock it down and walk through the damn thing. And if the wall has to come down with the door, then the wall has to come down with the door. There comes a time in the life of men where we choose either to fulfill what we're capable of or to accept what we're handed. Every time I see someone take the second path, the path of acceptance, it hurts. I really mean that. It's not just nice-sounding words or things to convince you of something. I really do. When I see someone just accept mediocrity, accept their station in life, it hurts because I know they don't have to. But I know the majority will. And that's why there's so much opportunity for the minority that won't. I'm not telling you that everybody will do this. I'm telling you that anybody can. Certainly you can, but it's your choice. Tear the door down or go look for the one that's been opened for you. But you might find you don't like what's behind that door. You know where you want to go. And you have to figure out how to get there. It's your own choice. That's what you can do. And it's all that you can do. If you don't feel understood, watch my video. I'll explain the mechanics of it to you. But I'll tell you, the truth is, there really is more opportunity today. More ways to make something of yourself today. More opportunity to learn, to share information, to adapt, to innovate than there ever has been. You just have to reach out, use the talents that lie in you, culture them, cultivate them. Stop listening to the people that tell you you can't. There's an old saying, those who want to tell you why something can't, those who want to say why something can't be done should not get in the way of the people doing it. And that's what you need to find. What is the thing that you know you can do better than anybody else? Or you know you can do your very best at? Pursue it. What do you love? Where's your passion? Where's your true passion? Maybe you need a break. Take a walk for an hour or a day. Hell, probably when I was quite a bit younger than you, I took one for three months. Figure shit out. And then make it happen. That's all I can tell you. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we 
there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess And we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Revolution is you.